0: Close watchers of Mad Money know I'm not a chartist, but I do play one on TV weekly, showing you technical patterns that can predict the next big move for stocks. Given that I base almost all of my work on fundamental factors related to the companies I study and not the shape of their charts, the -the off-the-charts segment is both heretical and antithetical to my traditional stock-picking methods. But I know from your feedback, at Jim Cramer on Twitter, that you're interested in this analysis. And importantly, it's proven itself time and time again to really get a lot of people involved at the right level, say. Now, not for a minute as I explain in Get Rich Carefully, where I devote a whole chapter to charting, have I become a chartist myself. I still single out stocks to highlight and teach about after studying the fundamentals, the research, the annuals, the sectors, and I overlay them on my broader worldview at the moment. Chartists can care less about this stuff. They often don't even care what the company does. I wonder if they could do their jobs with the company's names blacked out. In fact, I am sure they could. Some of them hate the distraction of knowing much at all about a company for fear it would bias them against the stock's chart. Can you imagine? Now, I've become pretty proficient at charting over the years, but I still rely on the individual work of professional technicians to demonstrate how to use charting and to learn techniques that I can in turn teach you. That's why tonight I am picking the best of the best charts of some of the best technicians we have worked with, exploring the patterns that have become reliable to the point where I'm pretty astonished at how accurate they can be. So I guess you got to call me a long-term believer. Hey, you know what? That's why I've started nearly every Saturday morning for the last 30 years reading the Standard & Poor's Trendline Daily Action Stock Charts, formerly on paper, now on electronic distribution. And they contain hundreds of charts. And I match those charts with the patterns I have learned over time. I then go over the research available for the most winning of the charts, and they often become segments on the show that you see later in the week. Why do the charts work? It's what people always want to know. First, you must consider them as if they are footprints at the scene of a crime. These footprints trace out what big money managers might be doing with their buying and selling of dollars. These portfolio chieftains at large funds often know more than others, including you and me. The charts of where their money goes, the charts of the stocks, put together clues that these big boys leave. Second reason to care, there's a remarkable self fulfilling nature of charting stocks. So many professionals look at these drawings and take them to heart that they will simply avoid stocks with predictably terrible charts and find stocks to own, stocks with charts that have presaged positive moves in the past. Don't I know it. When I worked with Karen Kramer, she's an inveterate chartist at my old hedge fund, she would look at the charts each morning, seeking ones that stood out as potential breakouts and breakdowns and then have me research the ones with most predictable patterns to get a handle on what might really be going on. We got some of our best ideas from some of those chart-inspired brainstorming sessions, a true and successful melding of the technicals and the fundamentals to produce excellent short and long-term results. All of charting and technical analysis starts not just with the pictures of individual stocks, but also what are known as the internals internals. Patterns about stocks in the aggregate that give you clues to the direction of the entire stock market. For years now, ever since the Great Recession, that showed the inherent weakness in our financial system, the so-called systemic risk I talked about, there has been tremendous skepticism about any advance of stocks. While I believe the systemic risks have been reduced, I know each rally creates really a worrisome set of risks. I know many of you fear that you're coming in at a level that could turn out to be, let's say, too late, too high, and you will lose money either way. Sell, sell, sell! Good technical analysis includes analyzing indicators up to help you determine the overall direction of the market. More important than ever, given that so many stocks are influenced mightily by the tug of the S&P 500 stock futures. Sometimes, to technicians, everything hinges on putting together the charts of individual companies and the charts of the bigger averages to create comparisons that elucidate and illuminate conclusions about true market strength. They're looking for what is known as confirmation of a move to detect its legitimacy. I think confirmations are incredibly important to the safety of a move. They need to be explained closely. The most important and obvious confirmation, let's say the Dow Jones average hits a new high. Okay, Historically, that high will not be sustainable unless the Dow Jones Transportation Index also hits a high or confirms the breakout status of the Dow itself. The Dow Jones Transportation Index is a measure of commerce. It's tracking trains, planes, truck, freight forwarding. Come on, that's a good e- Really, isn't that a good gauge? If both the industrials and the transports hit new highs, I often tell you that the move is legitimate and it can be trusted. It is, le- it is real. This is some of the oldest technical work. Dating back to Charles Dow, the founder and first editor of the Wall Street Journal, who created the eponymous Dow Theory to validate rallies or defrock them. You often hear at the top of the show that I like how the transports are acting That's because I'm trying to see if the move is staying power in order to bless it. I look at a host of other indicators. The banking index is important to me. The housing index. I look at the semiconductor index, or SOX. And the RTH. That's that all-important ETF that encompasses the big retailers. I like to see all these indices move up in sync before I truly bless a market move for you. You get all these indices rolling higher, you have to put the maximum amount of chips on the table. Oh, boy, but is the inverse true? If we get a move a move up without confirmation from the majority of these indices, the whole rally could be a fake-out and can't be trusted. The classic example, if you go back to the move uh, up to record highs before the Great Recession, you will notice something pretty incredible if you, try, if you go back and study it. You will notice that there was almost no participation among the financials, the retailers, or the techs. Technical analysis got you out of that market before it was too late if you follow those indicators did much better than the fundamentals. What are the other internals I look at? I analyze the advances and declines to figure out whether the rally's too concentrated. I'd like a market with good breath or a lot of participation by many different groups. I also look at the new high to new low ratio. Remember, it isn't easy to get on that new high list. First, the company must be doing exceptionally well. Second, the sector's got to be strong. Third, larger forces, the Federal Reserve, interest rates, geopolitical tensions, politics, have to be aligned to make some stocks successful enough to get on that new list. That high list is is rarefied territory. You run the gauntlet, you have a good stock, a stock that I probably want to buy on any pullback that's market-related, not substantive, substantive to the stock. Hey, And if there are a lot of stocks on the new high list from many different industries, that's actually a terrific sign. So here's the bottom line. You may not be a technician, but you need to know what the charts are saying, and you need to know how to read the internals to verify a real move or a phony one. Stay tuned, and we'll go over a whole host of predictive patterns that suffuse pretty much everything we do around here, not just on the off-the-charts Tuesday, but in stock selection every single day. Jim in Michigan, Jim! Jim, hi. How are you? And thanks for taking my call. Of course. Thrilled that you called. What's up? I got a question for you. In the in, in this segment, you were talking about secular stocks. Could you define for me... Once again, what are secular stocks? And maybe give me an example or two. Certainly. Uh, and, and look, this is a very important issue because it's a term that goes gets thrown around. People are like secular, parochial. Secular means a secular growth stock is something that does not need the gross domestic product of the world to, to increase in order for it to be able to beat the numbers. Some of the classic uh, secular grower stocks would be some of the biotechs. Um, some of the retailers that have terrific growth. Gary in California, Gary.
1: Mr. Kramer, booyah to you. Booyah, Gary. Gary from California. My question is regarding dividends in a down market, sir. If uh, you're accumulating dividends on a number of stocks, as you suggest, uh, is it better to reinvest them in a down market or to take the money as cash and then possibly reinvest that in other opportunities. Well,
0: you see, we don't know when a down phase is going to end, and we know the power of compounding is an amazing thing, so we're going to stick always on this show. I know it sounds pretty pedestrian, but we're always going to opt in favor of reinvestment because fortunes have been made through the power of compounding. I've got to go with that regardless of the near-term consequences because I'm thinking long-term for you. Fundamentals, oh, they're key, but technicals matter too. Tonight, I'm bringing you into the world of mastermind charters so you can learn to see the whole picture behind a stock's moves. On Mad Tonight, we know the chart's important, but what technical tool can help you detect floors and ceilings? I'm revealing it. Then, how can you tell if a company's overbought and ripe for a pullback or oversold and ripe for bounce? And mixing patterns isn't only for fashion. I'm highlighting the patterns worth banking on when it comes to investing. So why don't you stick with
1: The earnings are relentless, but Kramer has burned the midnight oil, and he's ready to run the gauntlet. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss.
0: Tonight, we are offering the best of the best of technical analysis, a one-stop shop of everything you need to know to augment your investing with the help of some of the best chartists in the land. Now, let's work on something that's been the province of the best chart work on the show, spotting bottoms for best entry points and examining ceilings for the best places to exit or sell. When you pick individual stocks, you are betting from the moment you buy them that they're going to go higher. It's a pretty simple concept. But how often do you do solid fundamental work on a company and try to figure out whether it's the right thing, the right decision to pull the trigger because your homework is finished? And then, well, it just turned out to be a terrible time. And you're buying oblivious to the stock. Hey, my homework's done. Let's go buy. Maybe it's not the right moment. After all the work I've done on the off-the-chart segments, I now say you're being short-set if you don't check out how the stock looks technically after you've done all that homework. But before you put the buy order in, it's not just the right time since you are done the homework. In fact, I would consider looking at the chart of the stock as, uh, you like as part of the homework. Get that in your head. Get it ingrained into your thinking. Sometimes finding bottoms after long declines can be incredibly lucrative. A good example, let's go back to the bottom of 2009. Now, I had a sense that the decline's velocity was lessening. I had already heard the late great Mark Haynes make his famous Haynes bottom call based on his innate feeling. I know that my friend Doug Cass, who writes with me at Real Money Park, uh, Pro, that's part of the Street.com family, sometimes noted as being an aggressive bear, had actually turned pronouncedly positive. He was saying we were at a generational bottom. But I was still skittish about picking any individual stock to recommend to you. So I was looking for a situation that seemed about as bulletproof as I could find. I came up with AT&T, the phone company. It had so much going for it. you got to go back in the Wayback machine here, but it was included a smashing rollout of the Apple iPhone, which was going to produce record profits as at took business from its Appleless competitors, had an outsized dividend, one that yielded 6.2% at that moment. The yield was much higher than just about any stock in the Dow. The dividend was safely backed by ATT's humongous cash flow. Still, though, the stock kept plunging every time I thought it might have firm footing. In other words, I had done my research, thought it was time to buy. No! No, check the chart. So I waited. I waited for a few days where the stock seemed to stabilize and decided that at last the level might be right and the stock could hold. In dicey moments like these, it's best to check with the chartists. So I did. I actually brought in four, four chartists. Amazingly, they all agreed that T had found a strong foundation and was definitely worth considering for an investment. Remember, they didn't care at all about the fundamentals. So take a look at what attracted them. Take a look at this chart. First, all four technicians agree that ATT had established what is known as a climax low at 21 back in the tsunami of selling that was this period. Okay, and you just have to understand that we are just at one of these moments that was just so hideous. You can see the big lift, big lift in stock, and then well, let's just state—I don't want to give away the story. That's where lots of sellers had capitulated. This is where they capitulated right here. Uh, but buyers had started to step up to create a. Base, okay, see the extended base or floor at the stock at that level. They arrived at that judgment by looking at where the volume, the sum of all the transactions during that period, had expanded to a level far in excess of a normal period's trading. So you can see there's a normal period's trading and then boom, take a look at that, right? That's a sign that the sellers had exhausted themselves. The volume levels, according to technicians, showed that most of the big portfolio managers who wanted out of the stock, they had fled it by now. At the same time, buyers would step up to meet the supply with a concomitant level of demand. Think of it like this. Until you got the climax, there were so many more sellers than buyers at each level that they knocked the stock down with their own seller. As long as sellers overwhelm buyers with their dumping, no base can form. Bad time to buy. A climax is a sign that those potential sellers who have been holding on for some time are finally giving up on mass. Big give up. Remember, technicians don't care why that might be the case. They're just monitoring price and volume. When they see that volume gets larger, expands, but the stock doesn't go down, that means at last the stock has found its floor, so it's now time to buy. It's safe. That's where the buyers are at last equal to the sellers in their power to determine the direction of the stock, and that's a form of equilibrium. It's finally upon us. Okay, that's the base ATT, but how about the events? That's going to happen when a stock takes out resistance overhead, Okay. To examine the possibilities of of a stock, the technicians don't just look at the closing price and the graph that price against the previous days or week close. They don't don't just look and say, oh, that looks good, that looks bad. No, Uh, that's not helpful because it doesn't yield a true picture of the stock's trajectory. Instead, technicians use what is known as a moving average to better represent the action in a stock's price movements. A moving average is formed by taking the closing prices of a stock over a period of time and then adding those prices up, and then dividing those prices by the days in a particular measured period. I tend not to talk about this and off the charts, but we're doing everything tonight. I'm breaking it down. For example, you can measure a moving average over, say, a 10-day period by adding up 10 days worth the closing prices, by dividing the sum by 10, plotting the number on a graph. Each subsequent day, you add in the new close, and you drop off the earliest price to get the sum of a new 10-day measuring period. The four technicians I check in with for ATT, they all choose to use a longer-term view. They selected a 200-day moving average. They noticed that even though ATT had most certainly found a floor at the $21 level, that the stock had repeatedly bounced off of, it kept failing, meaning it couldn't get through, uh, uh, to, failing to move up above the 200 day moving average. They had all plotted it, they'd all done the same amount of work, that's what they looked at. And that created what looked to be a ceiling. See, we had the ceiling, the 200 day moving average. There's nothing you can do. They just felt that every time it got there, the stock was capped. Then at last, ATT cracked through the ceiling of resistance, and that's the 200-day moving average. That was the signal. That was the signal that at last ATT could generate a great trade or an investment. The old roof became a new floor. Here's your new floor, the 200-day. Every time the moving average went above the old roof, it would create the possibility of a new floor. Then the stock would come back and test that floor, and it held. This pattern emboldens buyers as they recognize the stock didn't break that newfound base and instead bounced off of it. In other words, it didn't go back to where that, that climax low was. It held. Looking back at the beautiful bottoming that we see here with ATT, it now seems like child's play, doesn't it? Yeah, of course, it was done going down. Yet at that moment, it was anything but easy because at the same time these technical analysts were saying the bottom is in and it was time to buy, the fundamental analysts, they were scared out of their wits. Not one was valuable to me in helping to call a bottom. They were all scared to death right here. Some were even worrying about pension obligations that could cause the dividend to be slashed, something that was way, way wrong. But it scared the heck out of me. Remember how many people are in this stock for the dividend? That base, that floor, gave the stock a launching pad to blast off in an almost straight line into the 30s. It's one of the biggest gains the safe stock could ever give you. So here's the bottom line. When you see this kind of reliable pattern, as ATT demonstrated, despite what the fundamental analyst might be saying, you have to use the discipline that these technicians give you to pull the trigger and take advantage of a fabulous buying opportunity that might otherwise be overlooked after the market takes a real shellacking. Never took it out. And then way up after the break... I'll try to make it more money. welcome back to our special technical show the next crucial theme for technicians whether a stock is overbought and therefore ripe for a pullback or oversold may be ready for a bounce You determine whether a stock is overbought or oversold by charting the ratio of higher closes, also known as the Relative Strength Index, or RSI. The Relative Strength Index is a momentum oscillator that measures the direction a stock is going and the velocity of the move. We like to match the relative strength of an individual stock to something else, perhaps the relative strength of its sector, or maybe that of a larger index, and we measure the price action historically. We're always looking for anomalies where strength stands out, Because that's a sign of a pending move, perhaps a momentum switch that we wouldn't know if we had just read the research on the stock. For relative strength chart work, I often turn to Bob Lang and Tim Collins, both of whom have done remarkable work on this topic and you hear about all the time on the show. Many technicians vary the length of time over which they measure relative strength. Both Lang and Collins like to use shorter periods of time, 10 days, 2 weeks, to get a beat on the relative strength of the stocks they look at. They're looking for any pattern that reverses the action of the previous period because that's the sign that a breakout or a breakdown of some magnitude might be upon us. They love strong relative strength situations. But they also like to the time their their buys after pullbacks. Get that better entry point. They really care about basis. Typically, when a stock gets overbought, it is ripe for pullback because overbought stocks, ones with many buyers reaching to take in supply, tend to snap back if they've gotten too far away from their longer-term trend line. The inverse can be true, too. A stock can fall so far so fast that you should expect a snapback because it's technically oversold. You hear me use these terms. We see these patterns constantly. They're reliable indicators that a change in direction is about to occur. These are terrific action points, people. If you are debating buying a stock after you've done all the research and you find the stock is overbought, I usually tell you to wait for a pullback. That almost always comes. That's because Lion and Collins have done enough chart work to know that the vast majority of stocks overshoot directions and then retrace some of those moves back to better entry or exit points. Hey, a retracement isn't necessarily negative. Charting, though, is tricky. Periodically, some stocks are so strong They break break through all the ceilings of all traditional significant measurement periods and then they stay overbought, perhaps for weeks at a time, defying the historical trading patterns that have hitherto trapped them within the bands of extremes. They defy the notion of the inevitable uh, gravitational pull of the old equilibrium line and just can't be contained by any of the various ceilings that overbought conditions usually bump into and come crashing down from. When you spot these highly unusual moves, you know what? You may have to strap yourself in to get a real moonshot. And we, let's take a look at this one. This is what I mean. This is rare, but when it happens, it's big money. We saw it occur in July of 2009, as Dan Fets- Fitzpatrick pointed out to me, using a stochastics oscillator. That's another momentum indicator that helps spot a bottom, this time in Las Vegas Sands. This summer, the stock of Las Vegas Sands, one of the largest casino companies with a very important business in Macau, again, not that it mattered to the charters, had been repeatedly stalled at the 10 buck level, falling every time it hit. Boom, boom, boom. You know, just not working, okay? But... When the Bulls finally broke out of the corral, there was no stopping them, and the stock gained all of strength after it pushed through instead of regrouping to cover from its overbought status. That's a very rare pattern. You see this thing? It just stayed overbought, which told you good things were going to be ahead. It never retreated as you would have expected. Buyers wouldn't quit despite the stock being overbought. And that is a sign the strongest kind of positive move in the book might be taking place. At any given time, I'm expecting a pullback. But no, you had that gigantic long-term overbought. This stock proceeded to go from $10 to $48, pretty much in a straight line with no substantive pullback to, be sp- to speak of. An overbought condition that can stay overbought is a golden opportunity for a huge move. Look, it came right back to being overbought again. Remember, I like to marry the fundamentals with the charts, so I'm not too dependent on the pictorials. But what was happening underneath this chart that it was able to stay overbought for so long? Well, you know what was going on right then? That's when the chief locus of profits for Las Vegas Sands went from being Vegas to Macau. The only place in China where gambling is legal. The change transformed LVS from a so so Nevada gaming company into an international powerhouse that might as well have been named Macau Sands. The charts told you about the transformation well ahead of the Wall Street analysts who were still dazed that we had had such a horrendous decline to begin with. They weren't thinking about Macau here. The chartists were thinking there's buyers lurking. Volume is another key tool to chartists. They use that to spot pivots. We often say that volume is a lie detector, okay, telling us whether a move is for real or not. When there is a small move on light volume, the technicians ignore it. But when there is a small move on heavy volume, the chartists drill down laser-like to see if it's a precursor to something bigger and infinitely more tradable. Chartists are at all times looking either for accumulation on big volume, meaning that large money managers are beginning to accumulate stock in an aggressive way, or distribution. That's a synonym for selling of a stock, and that could telegraph a big decline. They measure these moves by something called an accumulation distribution line. When the calculation, the accumulation distribution line is arcane involving the day, I know it is, charting of whether a stock closes higher or in greater volume or on any given day versus lower or on low volume. Again, any brokerage house will actually offer you the kind of charting on its website. I care passionately about it because it can go against the grain of conventional thinking about a stock. And that's why I love charts so much. They go against the fundamentals sometimes, and sometimes they're right. We saw them being right in Monsanto in July of 2012. This was an unbelievable one that I completely got wrong. Thank heavens for the chart. I didn't care for this stock at the time. I didn't like GMOs. I was kind of biased, you know. Tim Collins saw it another way. He said the accumulation distribution line, showed that while the stock had down days, they were on light vibes. So all the down days, you had low lines here. And then a a heavy volume on the up days. That's a sure sign that more money was flowing into the stock than out of it. Collins noted that such a consistent, persistent accumulation or buying pattern versus the distribution or selling pattern convinced him that large funds were building positions to own the stock long term. Not to rent it for a quick move. It turns out that what I didn't see What I was so confused about was that Monsanto's stock had started to be correlated with the price of corn, which was going higher back then because of newfound demand for ethanol engendered by government price supports. I was far too concerned about near-term earnings and worries about a shortfall and wasn't thinking big picture, but the charts showed you big picture. The work of Collins told you not to fear. It was showing you that something bigger was developing than just the quarter. He was dead right. And a stock that I would have kept you out of turned out to be a big winner when corn shot up, taking Monsanto's stock and its earnings up with it. Uh, the big boys knew the relationship with corn and Monsanto's business. You were able to piggyback off their research by using Collins's work, which isolated the real underlying strength of the stock as depicted by the accumulation distribution line. I got smoked. He saw it. Bottom line. We need to look at lots of different indicators to spot big moves. Indicators like accumulation distribution, overbought, oversold levels, to spot important turns that might not be visible otherwise, to those of us stuck trying to spot changes in the fundamentals that often are further out in time. Powerful moves can and often do elude those who are only focused on the underlying companies and not the action of the stocks themselves. Let's go to Dan in Illinois, please. Dan!
1: Kramer, booyah, thank you for demystifying the market and helping us... It, make it accessible
0: well that's what i my want question, everybody to understand their money that's my goal how can i help
1: thank you i'm wondering if i start with a small position in a stock a company i like and the stock just keeps going up the most it comes down is maybe two two and a half percent how can i get a size more sizable stake My discipline
0: says you missed it. That's one of the things. My discipline will cut cut off the downside, which is far more important than cutting off the upside. And if you bought a position in a stock and it just kept going higher and you didn't get any more, well, it's a trade and you got to take it. I I know people don't want to hear that, but when you violate your basis and pay up, I can show you for years and years and years for my charitable trust, I have done the work. It is almost always a mistake. Chartists use all different types of indicators to spot big moves. That helps them stay ahead of the game and the fundamentals. And now you're ahead too. Much more mad money ahead. Ted and shoulders isn't an only used for preventing D-and-Drop. I'm telling you how it can help you make some money. Then our technicians and fundamentalists like the Jets and the shark, You're Sharks, you're not going to want to miss my take on the dynamic between the two. And got a burning question? I'm taking your tweets. Go ahead and tweet me at Jim Kramer, hashtag Mad Tweets, and I might answer your question on air. Stay with Cramer.
1: When it comes to your portfolio, Cramer will always go the extra mile, traveling the country and telling the most valuable stories. Start your investment journey with mad money and let Kramer help map out your financial future.
0: We learned a lot tonight about the key terms of technical analysis. Now let's look at some of the individual charts that many of you find fascinating, even as some of the patterns, uh, they almost sound silly, as if they're mimicking letters or geometric shapes or even body parts. I learned not to ignore one of the most simple but far by far the most reliable patterns out there. The dreaded head and shoulders pattern. <laughs> well, and my travel trust brought Alcoa in the low teens in 2010 and ultimately took a giant bath in red ink because of that ill-informed, or or, or, or could I just really or I say maybe early buy? Remember, I like to do mea culpas in the show. I like to show you what I did wrong. You can learn from my mistakes. We incorrectly become enamored of the great work CEO Klaus Kleinfeld had been doing at Alcoa, making it less dependent on metal itself, more on proprietary forms of aluminum, something that solidified when it announced it would have split into two separate companies. Here, why don't you take a look at Alcoa, okay? this had enjoyed a healthy run from the winter of 2010 right up until February of 2011, rising from $13, nice rise, right? Up to 17 as its earnings trajectory seemed to have finally turned around. Not long after the stock hit 17, it took a quick dive back to 15. No reason I could discern. Then it quickly reversed and went right back to 17. Uh, and then went up to 18 on the eve of the quarterly report. I thought the quarter when it was announced was a fine one, beating both the top and bottom lines. Most of the time, that's all you can ask for. What worried me, though, was that after an initial positive reaction, the stock then dropped down to 16. 16 and change. On the news of that better than expected quarter. A few days later, oh, there we go, it's back to 17, and I felt almost vindicated, right? I mean, come on. Hey, now, get ready to go back and take a challenge at 18 level. So I went and bought more. I went and bought more right there. Well, could I have been more wrong? Oh, I don't think so. Because that $17 to $15 dive, represented on the chart as a point A and B, then follow the run to C, 18, back to 16, D, finally 17, E. You know what that is? That's a perfect head and shoulders pattern. Yeah, just like a human's head. That is it. That is the most frightening pattern in the entire chart book. And I'll call it, trace it out, just when I thought we were out of the woods. What was happening during that period that the head and shoulders pattern flagged? Europe and China began their slowdowns, so and the aluminum quickly came into glut, thereby stunning the turn that Clownfather worked so hard to execute. He could control his own company, but not the price of the commodity itself. Still is aluminum! Over the course of the next few years, Kleinfeld was able to reinvent Alcoa to be much less dependent on the commodity, rally well off its lows. But that came only after completion of the brutal head and shoulders pattern from a few years before, one that cost the trust quite a pretty penny. Remember again, Mia culpa. One of the things I admire about technicians is their intellectual consistency. If a head and shoulders pattern signals trouble head, an inverse head and shoulders pattern signals the opposite, a real chance for glory. At the beginning of January 2013, lots of people thought the economy was taking off and investors were running for the classic food and drug stocks, the ones you don't really, yeah, don't need a strong economy. And they were headed toward the cyclicals. Yeah, Caterpillar, Cummins, United Technologies, you know. The kind of rotation, that kind, is usually the death knell for stocks that typically go higher only when the economy is slowing. However, Tim Collins, on an off the chart segment, said, you know what, Jim, you ought to have to take a hard look at Pfizer Because its stock was tracing out a reverse head and shoulders pattern. The world's largest pharmaceutical company would be precisely the kind of company that I would shun. I would normally never touch this thing when the economy's speeding up. But if you take a look at this chart, you can see that Pfizer traced out a left shoulder as it rallied through the month of October and then started declining aggressively. Okay, in November, the stock bottomed to form the head. And then in December, it caught a rally and then a pullback to create the right shoulder. The key with this pattern is the neckline, the line that connects the head to the two shoulders. When a stock breaks out above that line, it tells the technician that you were about to witness a big, big, big move. Pfizer's neckline was at $25.80. And Collins predicted that if you could take out that neckline, it could be in for a monster run. Given that money was pouring out of the staples and drug stocks headed for the industrials, I was confounded by this bullish reverse head and shoulders pattern. I didn't trust it one bit. I mean, come on, I'm like king of rotations. I knew it was a bad stock. But Collins said, rotations, smotations? You had to close your eyes and buy the stock because something big was going on that could make it buck the market's prevailing trends. I think it was inconceivable. Sure enough, he was right. I was wrong. The stock almost instantly jumped more than 10% after Collins told me to buy it with both hands. What caused the move? Soon after Collins flagged this bullish reverse, right here, the reverse reverse head and shoulders pattern, the huge drug company decided to spin off its animal health division. It was a shocker into a new and publicly traded company called Zoetis in a move that openly created $15 billion in value. Who knew the chart did? Here's the bottom line. Patterns matter. When you see head and shoulders pattern, no matter how confident you might be in a situation, don't take any chances. Sell, sell, sell. At least some of it, please. And when you see reverse head and shoulders developing, even if it makes no sense when it comes to which stock it is happening to, you've got to consider... I some! That's how powerful these moves are, and the charm work on these two patterns is vindicated far more often than the skeptics would ever think possible. Stay with Kramer! Hey, I'm hey, Kramer! I'm Kramer. Welcome, Welcome to Mad, Mad to money. money! Other people want to make friends. Make... I'm just trying to make trying us trying to make some Money. 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 Academy at West Point! Bad Money is not a show about picking stocks for you. It's a show about empowering you to think for yourself. You are the reason why we do this. We want to level the playing field for you. the gamut of technical trading tonight on this special show, including some of the basic patterns like the head and shoulders and reverse head and shoulder setups that often presage big down and up moves. But those patterns aren't the only chart patterns that can be relied on to tell us the truth when the fundamentals give us little insight into the direction of stocks. One chart type we've come to love on Mad Money is what's known as the cup and handle pattern. We've seen it so often, it's been so reliable that I've used it to keep myself in stocks that otherwise I might have been turned off on. Or shaken out by. Take the stock of Kramer fave Domino's. We got behind the pizza franchise back when it traded down to 10 bucks, and we were feeling pretty darn greedy when it traded all the way up to the 30s. Next thing you know, the stock exhibited some dubious sideways action, and it began to drift down on no new news. I hate these kinds of churning situations on no news. Why? Because I'm always paranoid enough to believe that something might be happening, and I don't know about it, and other guys do. When the analysts are iffy in split, as was the case with Domino's in the 30s, and the company isn't talking, that's when the technicians are most needed. So I went to Ed Ponce, one of our absolute favorite charters. who toils at Barchetta Capital. And I asked for his help to divine if Domino's moment had now come and gone. Take a look. Here's what he sent us at the time. When we reached out to him, the stock of Donor's had just begun to drift back up. And you know what? Yeah, we, we would have blessed uh, telling you to sell, right? We thought the thrill what uh, might have been going here. Maybe you should ring the register. Take the big gains for our viewers. So tempting right there. Uh-uh. In fact, Ponzi told us to do just the opposite. That little advance back up was the sign he needed it all as well. And you had to load the boat up with Domino's stock. He said it was a very special moment. And he was anxious to show us why. You see, with that return back up to, say, 36, okay, Domino's was tracing out a perfect cup and handle formation. That's right. A pattern we have found is we reliable as a head and shoulders and its predictability. A total launching pad for a much bigger move. You caught the beginning of the cup at thirty-six bucks, then a gentle slope down to twenty-eight, where the base of the cup was. Okay, and I was really nervous right there. All right, he told me not to be. The stock then climbed back to thirty-six, create the right side of the cup, and then we got a thirty-seven, uh, a, side, a little sidling to a sidle to thirty-seven, thirty-eight, and that would be the beginning of a handle that almost always signals a much higher move. Handle? Handle always goes like that. Very reliable. Sure enough, Ponzi's work nailed it. Dominoes proceeded to double and then some from the base of the cup as earnings turned out to be accelerating. It turned out that the stock was simply consolidating. It was ready to power higher in the next big move. This was positive action. Uh, Dominoes, right there, what they were doing, they were embracing technology. The web and the cell phone, Facebook, eliminate order takers, let customers place orders directly via the net. We would have left a minimum of a double on the table if it weren't for Ponzi's guidance. I had to go back to Ponzi when I was concerned about another one of my favorite stocks, Monster Beverage. I thought I'd run out of room, couldn't go higher near the end of 2011. I needed a chartist to give me the skinny because I kept hearing that Red Bull competition was crimping Monster, one of the best performers of the era, and that there was the distinct possibility of regulatory intervention in the energy drink business. Always deadly. Ed set me straight. Check this one out. He said that for months, the stock of Monster had been bouncing off its 100-day moving average. Okay, the blue line, you can see. Every time it looked like it was going down, right? It rebounded. Look at this. Rebound, 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 rebound. He said that Monster was tracing out a series of triangles, also known as flag patterns, where you get a flat ceiling of resistance and an upward sloping floor. See that? Boom, boom, triangle, triangle, triangle. When the stock hits the new line of resistance, it punches right through. He said that anytime you get these pennant formations, which are just short-term consolidations, that are preludes to what is known as a continuation pattern, you do not have to worry about a stock running on empty. A matter of fact, you had to buy this thing both hands every time. Stock at 49, then proceeded to jump to 79. Confounding the naysayers, including numerous short sellers who may have been less negative had they known about this pattern and even cared about it, they were just worried about the government intervening. You know what? Ultimately, monster tied up with Coca-Cola, a truly monster of a soft drink company, in a deal that rocked the world. Shows you that energy jinks are here to stay once again. I would have been shaken out of this stock's move if it were for Ponzi and his chart hand-holding. There are a lot of variations of these different triangle and pennant formations. For instance, take a look at this chart. Collins identified this one. Big move up. Citigroup. Everybody hated it in June 2010, where the lows just kept getting higher, but the highs stayed the same. He loved this right here. This is what's known as a wedge pattern. Collins finds it as reliable as the pennant and the triangle patterns that Ponzi believes in. We've also had tremendous success following the works of Carolyn Barodin. She's the Fibonacci queen. Can't not mention her on this show and adherent to Leonardo Fibonacci, the medieval Italian mathematician whose work I often talk about. The Fib Queen uses ratios found in nature. You've heard of Fibonacci patterns. We also like the work of Carly Garner, who uses data from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to examine when too many hedge funds are leaning the wrong way on a commodity. And we have to veer in a different direction for success. The bottom line, technicians and fundamentalists can coexist. Make peace with them both. And I bet you will make a heck of a lot more money than if you're blind to one or the other. And certainly to both. We have Money's back into the break. I'm opening up the lines to hear from you, the voices of great America, because it's an uncertain time. I want to talk to you. Mr. Kramer, I just want to tell you, you are absolutely, positively fantastic. Thanks for helping us not panic in times like this. The average investor, which we all know and love, you cater to us, and we appreciate that for all you teach us. I am not going anywhere. You shouldn't either. We will get through this together. Kramer has your back.
1: Call 1-800-743-CNBC and let's take on the market together.
0: We're going to figure this out. We'll puzzle it over, and we'll make it so that we're all smarter. Hey, Cray America. In charts, you're looking for trends, finding big moves, and the meaning behind them. On Twitter, what's trending can also tell you a lot. Um, uh, Hashtag tweets anyone? Today, I'm counting down some of your top tweets to see what's trending. First up. We have a feel-good tweet from at D. Thompson. Thank you at Jim Kramer for all the good advice. Thanks to your books and hard work saving and investing. I retired at the age of 55. You know what? I want you to continue to own a lot of stocks. You're not going to get a lot of income from other activities, from other bonds, and stocks compound. You get that dividend. Keep reinvesting. Here at SRC Talent Tweets at Jim Kramer, my 19 year old son wants to start saving for retirement. Do you have any advice? Keep up the great work. Unfortunately, it's boring as all get out. We're going to start with an SP index fund. Just find one with low fees. Not going to recommend any particular one. But once they've put $10,000 aside, then they can focus on individual stocks. Them's the rules. I'm not varying them. Next, a shout out from 8 at HS Drippinger Rider. At Jim Kramer, tough one. Don't let the haters get to you, Jim. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay above their pettiness. Periodically, I get tired, too, and I get a little angry, and I get a little feisty. But what I am like is that this is my little zone here, right? It's all NFL. You come into my box, you're going to have to be tackled. I'm not looking the other way. Next up. At Villa Marin J. writes, you want new investors to max out on index funds before investing in single stocks? Maxing out on 401k, okay to invest? Again, this show is incorrectly known as some sort of trading show where we don't like index funds. We're an investing show where we demand you be in index funds. Sorry for the misinterpretation by you! Last but not least, at Jack Kripner says, excited to have found at the at At Jim Kramer show at a relatively young age. The guy is a genius with a load of valuable information for free. I only wish my mom and dad were still alive because then, finally, they can say, hey, I told you, Jimmy! Stay with Kramer! All right, I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you. Right here on Mad Money, I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you next time.